Well, hey, good morning, Grace. Woo! I'm thrilled to be back, uh, mostly because I'm thrilled where our, our various teams have been working a lot on the next six weeks, or six weeks, next six months of sermons that we're going to be doing and kind of how we're going to line things up. I got to tell you, the next six months are awesome. They're just going to be great when September rolls around. Not so good. We're just going <laughs> to go back to mediocre. But between now and then, <clears throat> we're, we got three different series that all line up and kind of work together for the good, and we're going we're gonna to grow together. Today, we're going to begin the first of those three series, and we're looking at what's called the upper room. This is John chapter, what, 13 through 17, five chapters. If you turn in your Bibles, go ahead and turn there now. You'll see if you have red letter Bibles, as sometimes they put in red letters the words of Jesus. There's a lot of red in these five chapters because Jesus is just giving a big explanation of what's going to happen and what will eventually happen. These are the last words to his most beloved followers. And just to like, appreciate the importance of, of this last section, you, you can see it in the way that John has been working his storytelling model, and it radically shifts in John chapter 13. There's a writing style and even, even his, the way he emphasizes his big idea. John's chapter 1 through 12, sometimes they call the, the, the book of signs, the first part. And in that, there's three and a half years of the life of, and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Three and a half years in those 12 chapters, mostly to outsiders, to, to, to the Jews, but to the public. And then it almost comes to a complete stop in chapter 13. It slows so much that from 13 to 21, the end of the book, that's called the book of glory. And now it's a private ministry to his faithful, true believers. But what we're going to look at for, I think, nine different weeks, the upper room, that's that's five chapters for what takes about four hours of history. Point is, like, the emotional levels are going to accelerate and, like, the, the, the intensity will peak in these five chapters. So stay tuned. Chapter 13, what we're going to look at today, is going to focus on an attribute of God. We passed out a pop quiz and had you write down the attributes of God. It, was, it would be the one that most people forget almost forgotten every time. And yet it's the characteristic that distinguishes Yahweh from almost all the false gods that we've created over the centuries. And it's this distinctive, by the way, that I think keeps people from knowing God and quite often keeps people from growing in their relationship with God, in their faith. And yet this attribute is a dominating force in almost everything we know that God has done on our behalf. The attribute is God is humble. Yahweh is omni-humble. That's what chapter 13 will be about. And to enjoy the lesson that we're about to learn, the context makes it even greater because Christ's teaching on humility is exaggerated by the conversations that the apostles are having right before the lesson. So they're, they're going into what's called the upper room. This is the last night that Jesus will spend uh, with the 12 and they're going into Passover or what will become the Lord's table. And right before the Passover meal, James and John, the sons of thunder, have their mom with them, their mother. 
And their mother with James and John goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, can you do me a favor? And he says, what, what do you wish? And she says, will you command it that when your kingdom comes, my two boys will be on your right and your left? Sons of thunder, sons of mommy. <laughs> so point is, they're on the doorstep of this lesson in humility and they are negotiating and, and conniving their way into getting the corner office. I love it. I'm not judging because I'm in the same van as they're in. I get it. That's, that's the way the world works. Three and a half years, do not be conformed to this world. It's easy to be conformed to this world. So are you ready for a lesson in greatness and in power? This is a beautiful Maybe the lesson in ultimate greatness and great power. Here it goes. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, the evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, now the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and he was going to return to God. And so, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Hey, Christian, behold your king. Even better, behold your God, Yahweh. This is a single event that is iconic for the very nature of Yahweh and the purpose of Jesus. A picture paints a lot more than a thousand words this time. Foot washing, a very common Greco-Roman experience, you would imagine dirty streets, open-toed sandals, and so it was a menial task. <laughs> it's menial for one thing. I mean, the our feet are they're the ugliest part of the human anatomy. Are we right? Has anybody ever heard, wow, you have pretty feet? It's never happened. And now these feet are dirty. So we have the dirt covering the ugliest part of our body, and someone has to clean it. Some Jewish uh, writings have suggested that if you were a Jewish slave, you didn't have to clean feet. <laughs> we got to get those Gentile slaves in here to do that. And so when this event is taking place, I, I would imagine that you could hear a pin drop that I would, some, I can't even make eye contact with Jesus, mouths open, maybe some of the men were crying. God made flesh, washing his disciples' feet. And this is a picture of salvation. He's, it's on display right here in this event. This is what Jesus does. It's what he was told to do. It's his nature to do it. And we, we, know he can, we know he can do that 
because of two truths. And I know this because it's right there in the Bible. Jesus is, is able to do this because he knows his place. He knows his place. Look what it says in verse 3. He says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God, and he was returning to God. Jesus' identity is anchored in these truths, this assurance that he knows his origin. He knows his destiny. He knows that all power has been granted to him in the Father. And that gives him the strength <laughs> to be able to do the thing that he's called to do. The second part that he has is he knows his mission. Jesus knows his mission. Look at verse 1. Now, before the Feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, his purpose, the crucifixion, that's the hour, that's the event, had come that he, would, that he should depart out of this world to, to the Father. And, that, and, and so now he's having loved his own who were in the world and loved them to the end. This hour, his hour, some translations say, this is, as a, this is why he came here. His mission, his assignment uh, it's like two levels. <laughs> the first level is the assignment that he would leave his place of honor in heaven, that all eternity could not contain him, and yet he would have to put skin on. All of, all of creation that he called into existence, that he holds together, <laughs> could be looked upon from his point of view as... as uh, Nothing more than like a ragweed particle, a nuisance in his experience. But no, he, he becomes human. It's not like us becoming like a rabbit. That's finite to finite. It is infinite to the finite. But it doesn't end there. He goes further down to take on the role of a servant. Jesus doesn't come as a conquering king. Doesn't come as a billionaire, right? He comes to be born in a barn from a carpenter. He's overlooked, and it continues to descend because he will be crushed and disgraced and tortured and death. Death, even death on a cross. And so what does Jesus do with with the power of knowing who he is, his origin, his destiny, all power has been given to him. And how does he display his love for his disciples to the very end? He washes their feet. He is on their knee. He is on his knees washing their dirty, ugly feet. And as the story continues, he gets to Peter and Peter says, you're going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, look, I know you don't understand this, but I, you're going to understand this someday. And Peter says, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And then Jesus says, look, if I don't wash your feet, then you're not part of us. You're not part of me. And then Peter says, well, if you're going to wash my feet, then you wash my hands, wash my head. And, you know, we're just personally, I'm, Peter just being the goof. Right. And on the other hand, he's saying what's natural. He's saying what I think a lot of us would come to because he is, he's seeing Jesus do something that he doesn't think Jesus ought to be doing. And there it is. There's the rub. 
I think some people can't find God, can't find Christ because they're looking in the wrong place. They're not looking at their feet. I think people can't grow in Christ. I think people stall in their relationship with God because they don't understand this attribute of humility. And this attribute of humility is all pervasive in the actions of God towards mankind. And if we can't know that and enjoy that, we can't find him and we can't follow him. It's so counterintuitive to our imaginations that God would be like this. I mean, think of the gods that we create right over the centuries. We create like Zeus and Poseidon and they sit on these distant thrones and what are they holding in their hands? They hold lightning bolts and, and tritons. They can throw at us because we deserve that. And here he is now, lowly at the feet of Peter, washing his feet, kneeling, sitting. This is a picture of salvation, friends. He came and washed the ugly, dirty feet and he came as a servant, as a slave, to wash the ugliest part of us, our souls. And to wash our souls, it would have to be his death. His resurrection proves that we're washed and cleaned. But it's him serving us again. I think Peter here is, is short-circuiting here. I, he does not know what to do with something he cannot grasp. This ultimate humility of, of Jesus the Christ, the God-man. I love how, I think Pascal explains what's happening in his life because Pascal says that the, the nature of, of temporal or the yeah, temporal man is, or finite man is man cannot endure extremes. We, we just don't know how to make sense of it. So Pascal writes that statement and he gives examples. He says, too much noise deafens us. Uh, too, too much light dazzles us. Too much pleasure annoys us. <laughs> he says, extremes escape us and us them. And then he says, too much grace irritates us. This is too much grace for Peter. He doesn't like it. Too much humility, too much grace irritates us. Or could I reference the Bible? Or transforms us. There's only two ways to respond to this. You're going to be annoyed by it or you'll be altered by it. So Jesus, the servant king, eternal in the throne room of God, bigger than an expanding universe because he knows his place, his origin, and his destiny the power that he's been given by the Father and the mission by the Father to serve the Father by serving his people, what does he do? He bows down and he washes the feet of his disciples. <laughs> Behold your king. Behold your servant king. That's who Jesus is. And if you don't mind, I want to belabor the point. I want to spend more time on this. When I look at this, I want you to see this attribute of Yahweh is like a meta attribute. In other words, it seeps into and influences other characteristics of God. 
We all know the attribute of God that motivated the, the father to send his son for our salvation, for God so loved the world, right? We know that motive. But friends, if there's no humility, Jesus, what nothing happens. As a matter of fact, I would say that if there's a one single smallest particle of humility missing in the triune Yahweh God, if, <laughs> then Jesus will not humble himself he will not come and do the job or he will not finish his assignment, certainly not, while being mocked by mere humans while hanging on a cross as they talk about where's your power now. His power was being contained by his humility. This self-forgetfulness, humility, self-forgetfulness, they're synonyms. Like, it is astonishing. It is, like, it is breathtaking. Like, the fact that, like, let's look at this. The fact that he even sees the problem, that he even is, I don't know, for me, when I'm facing a challenge, I got a big thing coming up on Tuesday, I tend to be pretty distracted because I'm thinking about that thing that's coming, something that's difficult. But certainly when something's terrible or painful, or death is at my door, yeah, I can be pretty preoccupied. How about you? Right? Hey, 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 we're having a conversation here. Oh, sorry, I was thinking about something else. And then here's Jesus in the hour, in his hour, had finally come. He is so present in that moment. He's so looking out at his disciples, his heart is with his men and what they need. He looks around and says, you know, I think this would make you more comfortable if we just washed our feet before we started our Passover meal together, that he even sees it. And that's just, that's the half of it. Then he does the foot washing. I mean, he could have, right, he could have just seen the problem and then he's the master, the teacher. He could delegate it. Like, uh, Judas, hey, before you leave, <laughs> why don't you grab a towel and do something? Help us remember you by. There is nothing beneath this king of kings. I hope you can see that and enjoy this. Because to know God, to, to know Christ, you have to embrace this attribute, this characteristic, this distinguishing Part of, the, of God, this omni-humility, all humility, total humility. And it, I don't want you to see this as an action because it's not. It, it's an attribute. It is something that's the nature of God that just kind of found a way to express itself in this graphic way. It's the nature of God. It's the nature of Christ to be humble. He can't be anything else. So, like, like, watch, I'm going to say this like four different ways, I think. For Jesus to come into this world and become a man, become a servant, even till death, even death on a cross, that dissension, it is not a stretch for him. He didn't have to, like, alter his essence or his nature, like, put it on, you got this assignment, okay, put on this, and then go out. No, it is within him. It is comfortable for Yahweh God to serve. He loves humility. 
one last time. It is natural for Yahweh to take off his garments and tie a towel around him and wash the feet of his dirty creation. It's just the way he is. And we know this because that's the lesson. Jesus says, I'm an example. It's the only time he says, I'm an example. Watch, look at the rest of the passage. It says, 12 through 17, and when he had finished washing their feet, he he put his clothes, uh, put back on his clothes, and he returned to his place, and he says, okay, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that's what I am. Now, now that I, your teacher, your Lord, your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Because I tell you the truth, truly, truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, the nature of his master. No messenger is greater than the one who sent him. And now the punchline, the zinger. Now you know these things about who I am, my very essence. Now you know these things and you'll be blessed if you do them. You want to be like Christ in all of life? You're going to need to be humble. Because he's humble. We're made in the image of Yahweh. Well, what image is that? Humble. He's he's a servant. Let me tell you two attributes of humility that come up in this passage. First is it's just, it's, humility is upside down. <laughs> it starts with the men arguing over who's going to be first and second. Or, and like our Our understanding, the world's understanding of power and authority is completely the opposite of how the king of kings rules the universe. As a matter of fact, you can kind of like just do the math. The more power and the more authority you have gives you more opportunity, greater opportunity to serve other people. And we know this because Jesus was given all power by the father. And what does he do with it? He washes his disciples' feet. The more power you have, the more authority you have, the greater opportunity for service. The other attribute of humility that we see in this is it's indiscriminate. Look at the audience that Jesus has here. In less than six hours, and he knows this, in less than six hours, Judas will betray him. The most outspoken, I'll go anywhere with you, Peter will deny him three times. And everybody else but John are just going to scatter and get a safe distance from who they pledge allegiance to. And Jesus knows this and washes their feet because apparently when you're this humble, when you're this self-forgetful, you forget the sins that people have committed against you. And you see a need and you just wash their feet. <laughs> this, is a, this is amazing. I hope, hope it's breaking some boundaries for you too. Well, how do you become humble? Well, it's a good thing you came today because I know how to do this. And, <laughs> and I probably said that wrong. Uh, it's not because I know how to be humble. I just, I'm so good at being proud. And it's, it's more like, do you want to learn how to stop drinking alcohol from some like teetotaler that's never had a drink? Or do you want to learn from some guy with a sober chip for 10 years? Okay, 
That's me. So I know, I know about pride. I, I, I've had people come to me and say, hey, why don't you lead like this guy in Dallas or somewhere else? And I go, I mean, he's just so commanding and in control. I say, I know commanding and control. I got that down. I'm going to rehab for that. I'm trying to hold that back. How do you become humble? Not do humble things, but be humble and just shows up. Well, if you look at the passage, that's what I'd recommend. Look at the passage. How does Jesus do it? He does it because he knows who he is. He knows his place. He, his identity is in his origin and his destiny and the power that's been given to him his father, by his father. He also knows, Jesus knows his mission in life. He knows why he was sent. So he's submitting to the mission of the Father to serve the Father, to serve mankind. And what we need to do, the way you become humble, is to continually focus on our place and our mission. We start the day. We don't get moving until we remind ourselves of the promises of God and what it says about who we are. And then somewhere in, throughout the day, we find reminders to remind ourselves that it is the nature of God to be humble, to become like Christ in all of life means to become humble. And then at the end of the day, we do an inventory and we say, how'd it go? Did you, were you looking out or were you holding a mirror the whole day? We have to go to, here's, here's how it works. You have to have faith in God's word, what God's promises say about that, that are true about you. And when we see this image of Jesus washing our feet, which is, an, which is a picture of salvation, the eternal being, coming man, that, that grace, that overwhelming extreme expression of humility will embitter us or transform us. And if we choose to make that humble expression of forgiveness the vortex of our meaning in life, then that so captivates us, it's hard to be thinking about ourselves too often, too much. In other words, when we find ourselves meditating on and memorizing that we've therefore been justified by faith, we're now at peace with God through our faith in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 5.1. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I meditate on that place, my identity's in that, my mind's gonna be pretty tied up. And so I can be focusing on other things. And the, one, the other, second thing is our mission. We must, we must see what the Bible says that it's true about our mission. That we're to serve the Father by serving our fellow man. We're to become like Christ in all humility. We are like him when we're humble. And I love how Jesus you know, finishes this story with a promise where he just says, and now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If you do them. And we know this maybe in our own lives, but in the lives of humble people, it just looks, humility looks so good on us because it's the, it's the way we were made, meant to be. It's just like joy and laughter breaks out because we're not like pushing our agendas out there. When we're humble, we become teachable because we're not defending ourselves so much. We're not about control, so we can be in the moment. We can enjoy the moment. In this moment that we're looking at, there was only one person that looked down and, and saw the need and did something about it. 
and his title is the Son of Man. And when he took off his outer garments and put on the towel and got on his knees and washed the dirty feet of the disciples, his creation, the angels wept in their worship. And we can experience that too. We just bring that humility into work where there's nothing beneath you. The more power and authority you have gives you more opportunity to serve. You bring it into your marriage, you want to be competitive, bring it. See who can serve the most. See who can be the most humble instead of trying to get. And then the, the marriage takes on the nature of marriage. Bring it to church. Serve your church. When I think about our church and even the collective church, it grieves me. Here, I, I'm so proud of our church in so many different ways in our health. But when it comes to like just serving in our children's ministry, for example, it's never been this bad. Something happened during COVID, like, I don't know. I keep trying to make excuses because I love, I just, I'm not objective about this church. I just, I think we, did we become proud? Is it beneath us to serve the children's ministry? Our own children? And then I look at churches around the country and they're dealing with the same thing, trying to find volunteers for children's ministry, swept through the country. What happened? In the humility of Christ, he would serve there. I just, I don't understand that part. Anyway, G.K. Chesterton said that birds can fly because the fragility is their power. Their frailty is what lifts them up. And, that, and he says angels can fly because they don't take themselves seriously. That's humility. And this humility, the nature of God, omni, humble, oh, it has so much power to change. It, like the, when you are humble and you gift people with service, something has to change. It will either embitter or it will transform. <laughs> Temporal man, we don't know what to do with that kind of an extreme. I had an experience somewhat like that. I, I, uh, it, for 70 years, Russia and particularly the Soviet Union, 300 million people lived under the heel of the boot of atheism for about 70 years. And in 1991, the USSR formally came to an end, the day after Christmas. And some of the nations already split off, but then it was over. And when the people woke up, the, 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 people, the people in government realized that they'd been void of any understanding of God and his nature for 70 years. And this is what it cost the souls of 300 million people. And so they, the government asked the church of the West to come up with a Bible curriculum so they might know the Bible, know God, and experience what's called Christianity. And so over a dozen uh, Christian organizations got together and they formed a thing called the co-mission. We're all working together, co-mission, this, this seize the day moment. And in 1991, I was working here uh, and with Walk Through the Bible, and Walk Through the Bible was one of the ministries that was asked to do curriculum. And so I was able to go to this historic event in, in Moscow. I mean, we had auditoriums filled with uh, 
school superintendents and principals that were required to go here, watch the Jesus film, learn the Bible so that they could bring it back to their campuses and their school districts. Crying, people, you know, eyes open for the first time in generations. It was a historic event. And the person in charge of this, you can imagine who would be in charge of something this vital was, I'm going to call, just call him Keith, okay? I can't remember anybody's name. So, so Keith was, he had been a, a covert missionary in Russia for at least two decades. He and his wife were in their 60s, grown children, but, you know, it wouldn't take long spending time with them. You would see that they were, were saints that because of their countenance and their presence, that, th- that they knew their water ran very deep. They just knew God. They had suffered enormously. The cost of that commitment to their mission in Russia for decades. And so just to just I'm trying to paint a picture of General Keith here because of his talent, sure, but because of his humility and and his character that multiple Christian organizations trusted him to be point man. And so two weeks can't I can't give you words of what happened two weeks in Moscow teaching the Bible and seeing people being introduced to Jesus Christ for the first time. Anyway, so the Russians leave and it's just us and, and someone says, hey, let's get some cameras out. Let's record some of this so people back home can understand maybe what happened. Okay, so two cameras, lights in the face, that sort of thing. It's my turn to do my talk and I got up there and the camera guy yells at me. He says, hey, stop, stop. I'm like, I said, what? He goes, Matt, you're chewing gum. I go, oh, I'm sorry. So I'm looking around for what to do with my gum, and I, I don't know. And then Keith is sitting on the front row, and he, he runs up to me and goes, here, just spit out your gum. I'll take it. And I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me, and I spit out my gum. And he goes and sits down next to his wife, and I don't blink. I just keep staring at him. And then camera guy says, okay, back to you. Roll. Let's go. And I... I'm still staring at Keith and his wife. And then I just start bawling. I mean, wailing. Boo-hoo, can't breathe, that kind of thing. So everybody's looking at me like, what's happened? Finally, I was able to talk. And I said, what are you doing holding my used gum? That was it. And I decided that day that I was going to follow Keith as he followed Christ. So much power. Have you held anyone's used gum lately? If you have, I bet you were blessed. And I know that because it was promised in the last verse of this storyline. And that when you do this, you'll be blessed. Because you'll be like Christ. The way you're supposed to be. I thought we'd end with you joining me and thanking God that he's humble. So we could even talk to him. Would you join me? Lord, we celebrate your humility today, your omni, all humility. 
that though you, Jesus, were in the very form of God, did not grasp that, but you made yourself nothing. And not only that, you took on the form of a servant, became human, and you continued to humble yourself in your obedience to your mission of the Father, obedience to death, even death on the cross. And because of that, the Father exalted you, put you in the highest place, that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is humble. He's a humble servant king. And even there, he points to the Father and glorifies you. Lord, we celebrate this attribute, and we want this in our lives, kind of. I'd ask that your spirit would give us courage to face the pride that keeps us from enjoying who we were meant to be and serving in the mission that you've called us to, of the people around us, just needing to be broken by an expression of absolute servant, humble life, surrendered to Christ. Lord, I'd ask that uh, this humility would so infect us, it would be a cancer to the pride that our lives negotiate around, and we would be self-forgetful, consumed by our identity in you and our mission to love the Father by loving his creation and serving them, not because it's burdensome, but it's natural. Oh, we long for that. We long for this church to be known as a humble church, just the way we are. We just find ways to serve because that's what we do. So bless us with that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.